Revelation chapter 2, 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches heart, mind, and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast uh, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we ask for a great strengthening In our church, we pray that your words here this morning to the church in Thyatira will be your words for us here at the Church on the Mountain. We pray that those words will be penetrating and encouraging and that they will encourage us to hold on to what we have in you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, just by way of reminder, as we've opened up our series here, diving into this look at the seven churches, what we opened up with and tried to point out and highlight, and again, I want to do this morning, is that everything that was written to the seven churches there in the first century Asia Minor that the Apostle John had instructed to be delivered to the seven churches on the mailing route there, that everything that we see in those churches, both their strengths and their weaknesses have been found in the church universal, have been found in the churches that you and I have experienced. And not that you go and visit a church and that you find that they are a cookie cutter version of of Thyatira or Sardis or Smyrna, but that the strengths and the weaknesses that they wrestled with are the same strengths and weaknesses that we can find in varying degrees in our churches. And also, I've tried to highlight that this book, the entire book of Revelation, really is a book that calls us to see the overarching plot line of what Christ has come to do. That he has come to slay the dragon and to get the girl. Recall this theme, that that Christ himself is the victorious warrior with all strength and might. And nobody's going to stop him from pursuing and achieving accomplishing joining up with his bride, with the church. And so he will need to, as Genesis chapter 3 has shown us, that he will crush the head of the serpent. And that even as it is decisively done with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, 
That so too we are now looking forward to that day when it will all be consummated. And the pain and the heartache and the sin that we deal with now will be no more. But there's one other theme I want to bring to mind for you here this morning. In and as much the theme of kill the dragon and get the girl is true. There's another plot line that runs through this entire book and is seen here, particularly in our church here this morning. And it is the title of the Charles Dickens uh, A Tale of Two Cities. It is here, what we see are primarily two people groups, two city groups. Uh, what we have is a sharp division that, uh, that occurs. It is the city that belongs to Jesus. It is the new Jerusalem that is above. It is the church. It is the people of God, the people of faith of all generations. And we also see another city of devastation, of discouragement. It is this other city here that we consider as we look and Revelation 17, it's titled Babylon, the harlot. If you could picture a city that was so unfaithful to God, a city that was so corrupt in their faithfulness that their very name hearkened us back to the city of Babylon, this empire that was corrupt and this these people that were unfaithful to Yahweh. That, that's what we, we see here being the imagery that is at play. And I bring to mind this topic of unfaithfulness and harlotry because we will see it here with Thyatira. Here we will find a church that is loving and yet is unfaithful in their loving. So outlining our time this morning, I'm, I will highlight first a love that is growing. And then I will look at a love with no bounds. And we'll conclude with a love that has a goal, an endpoint in mind. So first, a love that is growing. First, what we get in this, again, as we've seen with each of these letters, we have an address to us from, from Christ that brings back what we saw in chapter 1. Chapter 1, we saw this full-orbed picture of Jesus. And each of the letters picks a piece of that vision of Jesus and brings them in as it relates to the specific church. Here, we see that Christ, the one who is among the churches, we, we have reminded again and again that he says, I know, I know. And here, Christ in his sharp vision that is piercing We find his eyes are not weak and frail, but they are on fire. He's able to see, which is why he knows each condition of each church. So depending upon the church, he'll say, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. He'll say, I I know where you dwell. I I know the type of culture that you are living in. Or he'll say, as he does here to the Thyatirans, I know your works. I know what is in view here for you, that you are working hard in these various things. And we see that his ability to see is also paired with his ability to stand firm. So we find that his feet are that of bronze. They are solid metal. This is to be in contrast with his feet being that of clay. Um, So that Christ, where he's standing, he stands firm. He won't be moved from this position. So that in his ability to see, he stands firm, resolute. He has, as it were, steel toe boots. Nothing is going to knock him off his stance. And so when you bring these two together, what do you see? It brings to mind that Jesus has strength. It brings to mind that he has wonderful sight. He's strong and he sees everything. And one thing he sees in this church is a great strength. 
He looks at Thyatira and he says, I'm looking in amongst you. I see something here particularly good. Your love. Do you recall with the first church that we opened up with, which was Ephesus, where the love that was there was not growing. It had diminished. Ephesus had begun in great love and their love waned till there was nothing left. And this is the church that Jesus threatens to, to shut down. But Thyatira, in contrast, is not like that. They have genuine love for Christ. They have genuine love for one another. And we get this little snippet showing us it's not a stagnant love. You see that? Did you notice that here in this passage? It's a growing love. Uh, not just their love, but their faith, their belief, their service, their patient endurance. Friends, this would be a wonderful church to be a part of. If we could go and be at the church of Thyatira, we would be amazed at their faith, their love, their patient endurance, their service, their care for one another. This would be one where the folks were caring for uh, each other in such a way that the gospel not just worked itself in from their heads to their hearts, but it also worked itself out to their hands and their feet. This church, they didn't just sing about grace. The way they lived embodied grace and the gospel with one another. Grace, patience, faith. Love and further. If you visited this church, but then you went away for a few years and you would come back, you would say, I'm surprised because it's not like you just maintained this wonderful position of love. You've been continuing to grow in it. And friends, I think, and I reflect on the church on the mountain, and I think about our love and our service. Think about the ways that we have grown in faith and the ways that we, even at times with patient endurance. And I think there, there is a sense here in which if Jesus were amongst us, we might hear these same words. I see your love for one another. My prayer is that we would also hear the second part of this, that we are growing in these things, that our latter works exceed our first that we would be a church that people say, this is a church that is not just remaining in a position. This is a church that's continuing to grow in these things. They're, they're more loving today than they were five years ago. They're more loving 10 years from now than they were today. That ought to be the character of this body. And, and just as a note to those younger in this church, I want to bring a reminder to those here that we need to prioritize our time so that this can occur. So that our hobbies, our interests, our time is not so engrossed with self-interest things that we have nothing left that we're able to use to serve others in this body. Perhaps a good litmus test for us is to, to look back over this last week or perhaps even if need be, look back over this last month and just say, as I prioritized my time, did I prioritize time that I just left open so that I'd be able to serve and love people here in the body? This is so important. I think some of us would say yes, and others would say, I need to grow in this. It'd be a, a good thing to discuss with a friend here in the church or to bring up with your spouse. And what we see with Thyatira, they had a love, a love that is growing. I mean, just this is so rare to hear, but this church had it. True, growing love. Now, I know there were likely a few of you who assumed that when I gave the outline for this morning's sermon, you thought I was putting all of these, these sections in the positive. A love that is growing. This is a good thing. A love with no bounds. 
Well, the first one is positive, but friends, the second one is not positive. A love with no bounds. Hear then why this is when Jesus says this love that they have with no bounds is not good. Look at verse 20 with me through 23. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'll throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Let me just briefly recall to mind here the history, the biblical history of what is being brought in. Recall from the book of First Kings where King Ahab, he was ruling over Israel, but then he began to take a woman, this woman Jezebel, as his wife. And she was, she was not Jewish, she was Sidonian. And he, he takes her, and, and the part of the problem with the followers of God is that when they intermarry with others who are not followers of God, they can be led away from the Lord. King Ahab surely was. And he began to worship the false god of Baal. And he began to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols there. That is why Jesus is bringing this to mind as an illustration for them. So that here Jesus picks up on this history of Israel and says, Now, if the picture of Jezebel can stand as this metaphor, then you, church, have let her just come in and take the pulpit and begin to teach people within the body that it's okay to engage in sexual immorality. It's okay to, to be caught up in idolatry, to worship the things of the world. And what was her particular sin here? Again, sexual immorality, idolatry. First, I want you to catch here how patient Jesus is with her. Some people feel like Jesus is a man with a fly swatter. You, you've been there, they're camping or maybe it's in the kitchen and the man has a fly swatter and the wife's going, oh boy, I can't wait to see this. And he's just going around and he's just waiting for that fly to land. And the moment that fly lands, not a chance. And some of us, that's how we view Jesus. We say he's just waiting to smite us. He, his heart is in such a frame that he just can't wait to zap you. That's not what we see here. This Jesus, for being the raging warrior, look at how he patient he is. Do you see how he's giving her time to repent? Do you see that? He's saying, my heart is that she would turn and not continue down this path. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait. What a great model for us likewise in our love to be patient with one another. It doesn't mean that we don't correct, but we're giving grace. We're giving time, even as we as a church correct. And friend, if you're with us this morning and you don't yet believe in this Jesus that I'm talking about, that we are looking at here in this passage, consider that all the people who make it into heaven at the end of this book of Revelation, they only made it there, not because they earned it. They made it there because Jesus was patient with them. And friends, Jesus is being patient with you. There's not one single person there that makes it because they earned it, because they deserve it. There's not one person who's going to make it up into heaven because they were perfect sexually. No, they will only be there because God gave grace, granted grace, and was so patient with them 
that then they would see this grace that is that has been bursting forth into their hearts and that they would respond in faith and obedience. Friends, the gospel is that Jesus died for sexual sinners. The gospel is that Jesus died for people who previously worshipped things of this earth. And so if that is you, then Jesus' atoning work of grace can be applied to you. And if you aren't sure that this has happened yet with you, I would love for you to speak with me after service. Don't go on without recognizing this Lord is so patient with you. He desires you to turn from destruction and to turn to him for life. Well, verses 22 through 23, they paint the picture that Jezebel and all who are connected with her, they end up in ICU. And the picture is, you know, some folks are in ICU and praise God, they make it out and others, they're taken home. But the picture is here. After this time of patience has waned, after this time of waiting has gone by, these folks who end up here eventually in ICU, it's a one-way street. They're heading out. Nobody makes it out of this ICU alive. And what brought them this, uh, this early church to this point is really understood by knowing the setting that they were living in. I think if we could have visited this church for a week or two, we would have been struck by something that marked the entire city. Now, <clears throat> many of these cities that are being addressed with the churches, there's something notable about them. There's something remarkable that we could say about them. And it seems to be that with Thyatira, this is one of those cities that really wasn't anything that you could put your finger on. Uh, it wasn't like Ephesus that was a capital. It wasn't even uh, like other churches that, that uh, you know, had some sort of claim to fame about them. Here with this church, there, there wasn't much going on there. The one thing that was stand out was their trade guilds. This was a church that was a booming, thriving, industrial production plant. This was a town that had much going on. Uh, in fact, archaeologists have noted that the town had these guilds of various industries. You could think of these as trade unions. Um, and what we find there, it's interesting. Listen to this. They have wool workers that were mentioned, linen workers, makers of outer garments, fabric dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronzesmiths. And each of one of these are mentioned with a particular guild or particular union, if you will. And each one of these had their own God attached to them. Even in Acts chapter 16, do you remember Lydia, this gal who is a dealer in purple cloth? Do you remember her? Uh, You know where she's from. She is from Thyatira. She's from the factories here, from the booming markets. And she may have been one of the first Christians in this city, but further understand that these trade guilds were not benign. Any more than, than the liberal unions, I would say, of our era are benign, either for good or for ill, there's always an axe to grind with these sort of things. And in the era of John the Apostle's day, to work for a guild ensured that your bills would be paid for and that life in first century Thyatira might be just a little bit easier. So that you knew next week you're going to get your paycheck. So that you knew over the next year you would, your job would be secure because you belong to the union. You belong to the trade guild. Whether you're a leather worker or a metal worker or baked goods, it didn't matter. It was a way of ensuring everybody's going to be taken care of here. And the economics of this and the prosperity of the city depended upon it. 
But more to the point of this letter, these guilds would have had a God attached to them. And if you were in this guild, the expectation was that you would need to please the God of the guilds. So, pretend with me for a minute. It's Friday night. You've been working hard in the bakery. And now you've punched out for the last shift of the day. It's the weekend. And the trade guilds said, it's Friday. It's time for some R&R. After all, you've been working hard. So come on down. We're going to have a dinner here. And, you know, your coworkers are going and their spouses are going and you better go. So why not? I'm going to kick back here. And so you show up to the dinner. You show up to the banquet. And in the middle of this, the patron uh, priestess or priest of this trade guild would get up and begin to offer sacrifices to the pagan gods. And you would begin to grow uncomfortable and say, I don't really want any part of this. It would be very uncomfortable as a Christian. And then they would expect you to wholeheartedly join in with this, affirming this activity. And because after the meal, many would engage in sexual activity, things got worse because the leader of the guild, in order to show allegiance to the guild and the God of the guild, you are now expected to join in with the sexual activity. And by the way, you wouldn't want to put your job on the line by not engaging in this, would you? Uh, You would want to show your allegiance. You'd be tempted to. And the crux here, as you can picture it, in just such a scenario, can't you imagine that in some churches and some of the folks, they're not wanting to lose their positions, they would go along with the sexual immorality and the food sacrificed to idols. Others may have whispered in the church that were, that, hey, we're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be accepting. We're supposed to be embracing. I mean, after all, isn't that what this very church is committed for? You have a love. A love that knows no bounds. A love that is growing. But now this undiscerning love we see through their actions doesn't protect them from going so far and no further. They will say that they can be loving to Christ, loving to the church, and loving to the deities, to the trade guilds, to the gods. And the proto-Gnostic mindset of this era probably encouraged this. It seems to be the case that there were some saying the, the spiritual is the good and the body, the fleshly things are bad. And so you could picture the mindset within some of the Christians saying, look, we know God redeemed our souls. We know the spiritual is, is the place that's being redeemed. We know that the flesh, you know, can lead us towards sin. So what's it really matter if the flesh does something as long as the spiritual side of you is protected and preserved? In fact, this might be a mark of maturity if you engage in this. Because if you engage in all this activity, well, it can show that, well, the flesh is doing this stuff, but the spirit is unharmed. But friends, the true Christian doctrine is that the flesh and the spirit and the soul, they're not easily separable like this. These things are connected. What we do with our bodies affects our souls. And and so here Christ says, look, you think that you can engage in all these paths and that you will remain healthy, but you're going to end up on a sickbed. You will end up in tribulation. You will end up in strife. Having a love that knows no bounds will land you in the ICU with no chance. Christian, I ask you, do you have a category Do you have a category in your life that allows for genuine love, but is confined and buffered by the truth? So that truth and love must go hand in hand. Why? Because I am arguing 
that love can easily turn into a compromising tolerance, which in the end is unloving. Let me say this a different way. A love that is tolerant of everything in the end is not love. The husband who says to his wife, I love you so much you can run off and just love any other man you want. I submit to you. She doesn't love her husband. How could God, who died for us, say such a thing to us? He can't, and he won't. So neither then can he say, feel free to go love the gods of this world, the trade guilds. No, he's jealous. He's a jealous God who calls us to love and to grow in our love for him and others in a proper way. And so then I I scratch my head and I say, how does this land in our context? I mean, I understand the, the general implications of sexual morality. We discussed this last week about sex being in the confines between a, a, a husband and a wife. But suddenly and increasingly in our time, I think that this whole letter to Thyatira is going to land more and more heavily on us. Let me give a brief example or two. My very first job. I'm sitting there at Fred Meyer. Now, I know many of you are fans of Fred Meyer. I see you down there in Sandy. And my first job, putting up yogurts, putting up cottage cheese. And here walks up the, the guy representing the union, whom I paid an, an, a disproportional amount of my check to. So frustrating to see all that money just flushed away. And he comes up and I think, great, he's going to represent us. We have some issues. And he you know, might ask me, how are things going on the new job? That sort of thing. No. He comes up with a brochure and he says, here's how you need to vote. The election's coming up and we need you to vote for this candidate and we need you to vote for that cause. I remember taking it and kind of reading it and going, well, wait a sec here. Uh, that candidate is outside the bounds of what I morally can vote for. My conscience, I would be violating God's own scripture by voting for this issue and by voting for that candidate. How, how could I possibly do that? And he says, right, right, right. But just remember that when you support this candidate and when you support this cause, you're supporting the union who helps ensure that your job is protected and safe. And we need your support to remain strong. It was a pressure to give in on my character, to give in on my morals, so that I appease the hand that feeds me. Perhaps more pointed is with my most recent position. Right before I came up here to Church on the Mountain, the place where I was working at, they were hosting a pride parade, and in which I was enlisted uh, and called up and said, you will help out with this pride parade. We need you to help oversee some facets of it, and we want you to help organize this and that and the other. And boy, did the email strike me heavily as I began to ponder in my mind all the ramifications of what this was going to mean. I I couldn't do it. There's no way my conscience would allow any of this. Uh, And and truth be told, at this point in time, I was up for a promotion. And so certainly they would decline to advance me if I was not willing to go along with the company agenda. You know, and so all of this tension and this strife in this moment, and I began to, to question, what will I do? What will I do? Now, what I did, I'd like to tell you that I was like William Wallace and Braveheart, and that I like painted my face and ran up to the, to the corporate offices and yelled, freedom, and went down in some sort of blaze of glory. But uh, in God's kindness and in his grace, he actually had spared me from the whole debacle. But it does raise the point, and it raises the question, what happens when there is no escape? When remaining in the position you are in actually means that you are leaving the God of Christianity, that you're no longer able to remain Christian where you're at. Oh, you want to attend this college? Well, you'll have to be sexually promiscuous. 
You'll need to succumb to the gods of our age if you want that degree. Oh, you want a promotion? Or you even just want peace in the workplace? Well, then you can love Jesus, but you also need to have a compromising tolerance so that you love the gods of this trade guild. Will you give in? Just a little bit. Just a little pinch, a little sacrifice to this God. Oh, you don't want to be blacklisted socially? Well, you'll need to have a love that knows no bounds. Christians, friends, are going to be more and more sanctioned for a love for Jesus that is uncompromising. On writing on this concerning tolerance, Kevin DeYoung has written you know, tremendously on this in several places. One of them, writing for the Gospel Coalition, he says, Christians cannot be tolerant of all things because God is not tolerant of all things. We can respect differing opinions. Let me say that again. We can respect differing opinions. And try, and we should, try to understand them. But we cannot give our unqualified, unconditional affirmation of every belief and behavior because God doesn't. We must not love what, we must love what God loves. That's where Ephesus failed. And we must hate what God hates. And that's where Thyatira failed. Friends, blind, ultimate tolerance is self-defeating. Imagine if I stood up here and I said, nothing matters. You believe in Jesus? Great. You don't believe in him? Fine. You believe we're living in some sort of video game? Okay. You believe there's only spiritual, nothing spiritual? There's only atoms and molecules? Fine. You want to give hugs and loves and and good? Good. You want to murder? Ah, that's fine. You want to work hard to earn your living? Yes. You want to steal and make easy wealth? It all sounds good by me because I'm tolerant. I don't think that that's what tolerance really is. Blind tolerance that says all things are equal is a movement that stands for nothing. It has no spine. It has no real reason to fight for anything. It just gets blown around by the wind of the culture, the zeitgeist of our current age. The old tolerance that I want to commend to you is the tolerance that Kevin DeYoung was talking about where he says, I'm going to buy you another cup of coffee. Let's sit down and talk so I can understand you and hopefully you can understand me. That's the tolerance that the Christian ought to seek. One that is truly loving and kind towards your opponent, towards those you disagree with. And you want to welcome this ongoing conversation. But a love that is a tolerant of everything, in the end, is not true love. Only a discriminating love ensures that we will receive the coming reward. Those who truly love Jesus, what we see here as this letter closes out, they receive Jesus. And so I conclude here with a love that has a goal. Look at verses 24 through 29. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, I say to you, I do not lay on you any other burden, only to hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see the goal here? This future aspect of us ruling with Christ, not just under Christ's rule, but ruling with him, being responsible with the time that God has given us now will prove that you and I are worthy of the responsibilities to come. We often say this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Have you heard that? Well, the truth is, friends, heaven is not our home. We're just passing through that as well. 
as we look forward to what Christ has called us to eventually, this new heaven, this new earth, a new creative work that God will do as we play a role in overseeing and ruling. And while we are ruling, we are told that we're going to be given a bright morning star. Now, this is interesting. What is that? Bright morning star. Some of these other things we can connect and we make sense. We're given a crown. And the other churches received a crown or uh, the, the fruit of life. Um, here, this is interesting. What is this bright morning star? Well, Numbers 24 verse 17 says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So we see there that this this bright morning star will come and be a, a conquering, shattering scepter. And then in Revelation chapter 22, at verse 16, we see, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to testify about these things for the churches. And then Jesus closes with this line, I am the root of the descendant of David, connecting him with the kingliness. I am the bright morning star. You see that? So at the very end of it all, as we are going to be called to hold on, all these churches, some of them who have received the white stone that gets them into heaven. But what do you receive once you're in heaven? Yes, you're eating the the, the, the fruit of this tree of life. But at the end, you receive Christ himself. Christ who died for you is giving you himself. Friends, if you get to heaven and Jesus is not there, It's not heaven. It will only be heaven because Jesus is there and he's given you himself this unhindered, never ending, perfect union with him where you will remain faithful and you'll never be tempted to go to side to side. You'll be there in perfect joy with him. And meanwhile, God is saying, hold on just, and I want to say church, just hold on. God has patiently held on to us. And now we patiently hold on to him. Uh, you know the turbulence in an airplane is getting bad. You've been on the airplane when all of a sudden the light and the ding goes on up ahead and you see the belt sign is now lit up. And then the pilot gets on. He says, look, sorry, no more parties. No more getting up. Stay seated in your seat and buckle up. Hold on. And you know it's getting really bad when, of course, they get on and they say, hey, all the flight attendants, you, you all need to buckle up too. I think if Jesus was with us right here going through the turbulent times that our culture is in, And some people are hitting their heads on the ceiling of the plane because things have gotten so shaky. I think Jesus would say, look, buckle up and hold on. Don't turn aside. Just hold on to what you received. Concerning all this issues of sexual immorality, concerning the heightened amount of idolatry, I think he would say, buckle up and hold on to what you got in me. And you will receive me. For those who are in need of resources regarding all of this issue, I want to encourage you to pick up Carl Truman's uh, book, A Strange New World. Um, If you were looking for help trying to understand why is it that our culture is in such a turbulent time, he does an excellent job in that book tracing out why we've landed right where we're at in this moment. So I would commend that to you. Meanwhile, the goal here is Jesus. The path forward is clinging to him while having him keeping his words, looking for this bright morning star that is to come. And so church, I don't want to burden us with any more of my words this morning. And I don't think 
Jesus wants to burden us with anything else. So I simply close with what Jesus closes with. I say, verse 24, I do not lay any other burden on you. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Why? Because the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, and even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we pray that you would forgive us where we have been tolerant of this woman who tries to enter our church and she tries to lead us astray with her prophecy, with her twisted speaking to tell us that it is okay to live outside of your rule and reign over us. Uh, would you be patient with us? Would you give us grace and extended time? Would you call those here who need to repent even right now to do that, to speak with a brother and sister, to Lead them by your spirit, Lord, to seek true repentance in its fullest. Give us strength to hold on and remain faithful to the end, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.